0: What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA member FDSE. I'm Ben, and you're listening to the Sound Logic Podcast. This is Mike.
1: Each episode, we discuss one of music's greatest albums from Rolling Stone Magazine's
0: Top 500 list. Brought to you by two guys with no credentials. Welcome back, everyone. Today, we're discussing album number 34, which is music from Big Pink by our friends... The Canadians from the band
1: and we're very excited this week to have back a special guest, Jason Crane. You may have remember Jason joined us way back for episode twelve when we discussed miles davis is kind of blue and jason we're excited to have you back again thanks for joining us
2: thanks i'm very happy to be here and happy not to have been typecast just into the jazz podcast
1: i'm happy to be here for uh, us rock music (laughs) this is rock
2: music (laughs) oh god (laughs) wow
1: So well, we're, what, are, what are we? It's just
2: a one minute and ten seconds in and we're all,
0: already shots are fired. Your uh, your typecast comment, it, it is worth saying, you have a very long-running, maybe the oldest podcast in the jazz world, so it, it, wouldn't, it would have made sense for us to just bring you back for the jazz albums, but we know that you are a person who cares about music broadly, much broader than just the genre of jazz. And um, I think it was probably soon after our last recording with you where we sort of were looking ahead at the next albums coming up, and and this was one that you were interested in, an album that you feel um, some special attachment to, so we're really happy to have you here, Jason. Uh, There are more aspects of who you are, too, than uh, hosting a jazz podcast. Um, No, that's
2: it. That's pretty (laughs) much (laughs) all. That's that's pretty much all. I think of myself as beautifully one-dimensional.
0: Yeah, a jazz podcast and a uh, a, a longer-than-brief chat podcast host, too. Yeah,
2: uh, I also host another show called A Brief Chat. I co-host that with my spouse, Owen. And originally, it was a 10-minute daily weekday show that right. was kind of focused on thoughts about anarchism and Buddhism. And then whenever Owen would be on, people would always say, Can we have more Owen, please? And so uh, eventually the the challenges of producing a show every single day of the week uh, were fairly great, especially since many of the shows had guests, including Ben, who was on an episode... And so I decided to make it a weekly podcast and just bring Owen on as the permanent co-host. So every episode is about a half an hour. It's a chat with Owen and me, and then it's an interview with a guest who inspires us. And the general theme of the podcast is living authentic lives on our own terms. And you can find it at a chatcom Plug over.
1: Please go check it out.
0: Yeah, J- Jason's giving us thousands of dollars to be on this podcast to yes. plug his own. And so um, we need to thank our sponsor. And... <laughs> 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 Jason and I met, I think we mentioned this on the last podcast uh, episode with you, that we met in the radio studio at 98.7 The Freak here in State College, a radio station that no longer exists. Even in web form, there was a transition where they were in web form for a while, and now even that has disappeared. But in its peak, at its pinnacle, uh, Jason was, I think, the most um, pointed and relative uh, <laughs> Relevant uh, radio host in our area had a morning show that I think it covered the heart and soul, especially of the sort of justice-minded folks in this weird happy valley. And um, uh, it was a great thing to get to know you in that way, I think, especially as I was arriving as a new person to town, having uh, the radio station as a, a way to sort of talk about some of the things that I was doing was incredibly valuable as my uh, presence here became established but but finding out that there were other justice-minded people in town was really special for me too so uh appreciate it jason and it it seemed especially fitting to say that as you're sort of moving on to other horizons now um yes
2: i'll be leaving the planet earth
0: (laughs) (laughs) very excited about that owen
2: and i uh used some of the enormous amount of money that we get from podcasting (laughs) uh, build a a rocket uh, that is Mm -hmm. uh, in our backyard it's on uh, easterly parkway in state college you can see it from several miles away and so uh early next year we'll be uh, blasting off for what i assume will be our equally successful lunar colony venture uh, called crane base one and uh, (laughs) we invite folks to check out cranebase1.com and uh, book your rooms today
0: I'm sure if I was more New England savvy, I'd make a joke about how Western mass is really um, outer space, but uh, <laughs> I, I don't know enough about the region to pull that punch off. <laughs>
2: uh, well, anyway, i'm am super glad to be here, and i'm I'm really happy to be here for this record. This is one of my favorite yeah. uh, rock bands of all time, even though we've already heard from uh, one of the Peanut Galleries it's maybe a <laughs> rock record. But the uh, the band is is absolutely one of my all time all time favorite groups, and I just I think they don't get as much love as they should, and so I'm super excited that you guys have reached this point where we can you know, kind of dig in on what I think is a, a really special album by just a a truly incredible group of musicians.
0: Mike and I are pretty uh, new to the band, um, aside from growing up in Canada, where there had to be a certain amount of Canadian content on the radio, and so the band. The band's bigger hits would get a lot of airplay. Um, I've never really done a deep dive. I think Mike is in sort of the same boat. But I'm curious, Jason, uh, given your the ways that you go about your music journey, I think are <laughs> you you go down these rabbit trails when you find something that you like. And so I'm curious, sort of from the origin st- state, um, did you find Dylan first and discover the band that way or was the band uh, in your wheelhouse before your awareness of Dylan or, or are they simultaneous or how does that work
2: well I didn't really grow up listening to rock music very much I mostly listened to kind of big band music and Nat King Cole and stuff like that because of my grandfather and then mm. I it wasn't until high school and I got into prog rock and I of course I had heard of Bob Dylan before I'd heard of the band just because of the relative levels of their fame I mean it, sure even if you don't listen to Dylan it you really have to live a sheltered life from all <laughs> pop culture to never have heard of Bob Dylan. Right. And so uh, not only had I heard of Bob Dylan, but in 1991 I was part of a, a religious work group called the company of strangers that was affiliated with the local uh, Episcopal church because my, uh, one of my best friends, his dad was the Episcopal minister and oh. company of strangers did work for um for folks who couldn't afford to have work around the house done themselves we did <laughs> landscaping and home repair and all kinds of things and uh, what one reward that we got for this and we we camped while we did it and that kind of thing it was it was really lovely but one thing uh, that we were we were rewarded with was going to a Bob Dylan concert at the end of this camp. What, um, what kind of church is
0: this? Because
2: <laughs> yeah, well, Episcopalians. Who knows, man? Uh, they're all a bunch of dope-smoking hippies. They're so good people. <laughs> we. Um, <laughs> In I lived in Canandaigua, New York, at the time, uh, and oh. Canandaigua, which is in the Finger Lakes, has a, an outdoor performing arts center uh, that everybody there just calls the Shell because it's you know one of those big. It's got like a seated section if you spend the bread, mm. you know, that's yeah. like under a big concrete awning kind of thing, and then sure. the, the hill. So of course we were up on the hill. Now this was 1991 or 1990, Bob Dylan, which was. The absolute worst time ever to see Bob Dylan uh, (laughs) because it was it was after the height of great Bob Dylan and before the emergence of grizzled cabaret Bob Dylan, which is where we are right now. It was right in the absolutely unintelligible barely a functioning human being on stage Bob Dylan and so I hated every second of it and I thought this is Bob Dylan like this is what everybody is so keyed up about Bob Dylan Mm. this is awful and then when I got married the first time I married someone who was um, a fan of kind of more traditional roots rock music and through that ended up listening to uh, the band and my my first wife Jennifer and I just got completely obsessed with the band. This was in about 1996 mm-hmm. or so. And we uh, we th- we were so obsessed that when Rick Danko died, we lived in South mm-hmm. Carolina and we packed a car to drive to the Hudson Valley to go to his funeral, wow. which we ended up unfortunately not being able to do cuz there was a storm uh that prevented us from leaving the island we lived on in south carolina but that was where we were at like we were so in love with this group that you know many years after they'd ceased to be a you know a real factor when uh you know when rick died we were like okay that's it we're no matter we're calling off work and we're just going to the funeral (laughs) even though it was like a 17-hour drive or something like that so um and i think that we just we really got captured by how authentic they seemed, and as it turns out, I mean, if you dig too far into the history of the band, you start to realize there's a lot going on behind the scenes that not all of it is is pretty, and there's a, a lot of internecine warfare and all that kind of stuff, but just from the surface, they... They were like a quintessential American roots rock band. That is, of course, like most great American roots rock made up primarily of Canadians, and <laughs> you know, same with you know Neil Young, Joni Mitchell, you know all the great like American you know roots rockers are all Canadian, and so uh, you know Rush. Brian Adams. Just kidding. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So Celine Dion. Was, Celine <laughs> Dion. <laughs> all the great <laughs> Roots Rockers, uh, you know, from Woodstock 97. So <laughs> we were really, really in love with them. And that, for me, has continued to this day. Um, I, I just... There's something about them that is unlike any other group of the time. And that I think that is largely because they were just completely unafraid to be who they were. And yeah. that authenticity really shows through in the music. They just don't sound like anybody else and they don't come across like anybody else. And they, despite the fact that they had some success, they either were not very good at or were not particularly interested at the kind of rock and roll marketing that might have helped them back mm-hmm. in that, in that day. Uh, and that, that, for me is a, that's a plus, not a minus. That's a, you know, a, a feature, not a bug.
0: There's a lot of risk. It strikes me with this group in that guys from Canada trying to pull off American South Americana. Hmm. Like, I mean, I, I know that, um, you know, we've got a lead vocalist and drummer here who does draw that perspective into the group, but it could have just been awful. Um, given, (laughs) given, you know, who they are and, and where they're coming from. Um, there are lots of attempts by privileged, narrow-minded progressive Canadians to mimic other cultures and it fails really miserably <laughs> and uh, and maybe they're I don't know I don't know enough about them to know exactly precisely how their stories intertwined with that with that world but um, it could be it could be horrible and, inf- and fortunately, it's it's wonderful um,
2: yeah, I mean it's certainly saved by half the, well, the two things I think. One, they're extremely talented musicians. Yes. Mm-hmm. You know, like they everybody can do everything. They they work incredibly well together. They're all extremely talented at their respective instruments. Uh I you know, I think a couple of them are virtuosos at their instruments, particularly Robbie Robertson and and uh, Garth Hudson. Yes. And then on top of that, they... I mean, they really paid their dues. You know, I mean, they came up as the backing band for Ronnie Hawkins, you know, as the Hawks. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that was a real, like... Like, if you watch The Last Waltz and you see... what cause Ronnie Hawkins uh, plays with them at The Last Waltz. I mean, you can you can really see how, first of all, what he was like, the kind of like screaming, you know, belter kind of guy. And these guys really needed to like hold it down behind him, and they absolutely did that. And then, you know, from Ronnie Hawkins, they ended up touring with and recording with Dylan not only – at the height of his powers as a, as a writer, but I think in the maelstrom of switching to electric music. Right, and yeah. so there was just so much to weather in that storm of, you know, being the guys who switched to Dylan on essentially. And, you know, I mean, there's the, the classic, you know, somebody yelling Judas at Dylan at wherever that was, Royal festival hall or Royal Albert hall someplace. And, you know, to be the guys on stage, although it wasn't leave bon at that time, <laughs> it was a different drummer, but to be the guys on stage when that happened is is pretty amazing and to hmm. you know to now in retrospect we think of things like the basement tapes and you know the live album before the flood stuff like that i mean that's like that's some of the greatest music ever recorded but you know at the time there were a lot of people who were like let's tar and feather these guys and ride them out of town on a rail and to have i think to have weathered all that it required a real bonding by the group which completely fell apart in later years in in at least some cases but um i think those two things the virtuosity and this kind of trial by fire of backing these two very powerful performers was a real help
0: that's that's a really interesting (laughs) helpful perspective i think as we get rolling here yeah Um, for
1: sure jason i appreciate all that um All that info and and insight into kind of... Because I think it's important when listening to this, I know I joked about that it's not rock, and really that was tongue-in-cheek because it definitely is rock, but there's the music is so diverse, and the instrumentation is so diverse, especially for kind of coming out of that era and with the other bands that were playing at the time. I just Mm -hmm. love all the different things that are happening, but I think it's important to understand kind of where the band came from, who they played with, and the birth of what would become, I think, and I totally agree with you, one of the most underrated rock bands of the 60s and 70s
0: and one of the best bands to come out of that era. Well, and your point, Jason, that they don't sound like anyone else, I think does make it hard to exactly quantify what, what it is we're listening to because they do draw on draw so much stuff and they don't sound like everyone else.
1: True. You just said that my
0: experience was the same as yours,
1: and I guess we'll just go with that. <laughs> <laughs> you can clarify that. <laughs> uh, well, I, I just, I mean, I will say that um, I think I, I am a little more familiar with the band over the years and, and things like The Last Waltz, which is a movie that I love. Um but in terms of the deep dive, I hadn't done that. And it's something kind of like, oh, you know, I really should listen to all their albums, but I haven't mm-hmm. yet. So this was the first one I listened to Back to Front. But so much of it sounded familiar. And I was familiar with many of the tunes, but um, it was great to listen to it and just to hear the richness of the whole thing. So, yeah, maybe in terms of the way you described your experience, maybe I'm just one step more in terms of how much I've heard. But still, this sure. album was new, but but it's uh, it's a good one. Let's do some details. Details, 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 details. Okay, so this album was released July 1st, 1968. Canada Day. Hey, yeah, good point. Must have been a Tuesday. (laughs) Um, And right uh, the year after the centennial. Okay. (laughs) 101. This album was written by a combination of all the members. And what I mean by that is each one is credited to a different member as opposed to that all credited to the band, um, and Bob Dylan uh, wrote one of them and co-wrote two, I believe. Um, and Long Black Veil is uh, kind of a folk song written by uh, Wilkin and Dill from the '50s. This album charted number 30 on the Billboard Pop Albums so or the Pop 200 in the U.S. Uh, the sales uh, there was a there was a quote that I read somewhere. Uh, sales were slim. Um, which is not very detailed, but I did find that, that it had gold certification in the U.S., which is 500,000. But that's now.
2: that that's I mean, that's up to 2019.
1: I don't yeah, know I when it got the you. gold certification,
2: yeah, but it was definitely not a gold record when it came out.
1: By any I, I would agree with you. I, I would say it wouldn't, it wouldn't have been gold in 68 or 69. It would have taken a long time to get there. Um, it's kind of one of these ones we talked about it was sort of a slow burn and picked up over time and not even that much compared to the other ones we've we've discussed um it was called songs from big pink because most of it was composed in a house that they called big pink which was shared by Rick Danko Richard Manuel and Garth Hudson in west you help me with the name here because i know you lived in new york west socrates
2: that's exactly right
1: Oh, good. In uh, upstate New York. Um, And also, as we discussed, falls a period of time when the band toured with Dylan in 66 as the Hawks, since they were Ronnie Hawkins' backing band. And after the time they recorded with Bob Dylan in uh, 67, I believe, in upstate New York, which would eventually be later released in 75 as The Basement Tapes. So that kind of gives you the background into uh,
0: where the album came out of and how it did. It sounds in the interviews with the bands that they were, uh, road weary at the stage of their, hmm. of their careers, having followed Dylan around for a while. And we looking for some rest and, and the suggestion was made to go to kind of quieter part of New York state and just unplug and Woodstock had a big, uh, kind of art community scene and people were sort of like, if you go there, people will leave you alone and you can just do what you want. No one will care if you play your music loudly and, um, so they f- they find this place, the uh, pink house and it becomes their kind of central home for the next uh, little while.
2: One I think po- misconception about this music is that it was also recorded at Big Pink since right. uh mm-hmm. you know the, some of the basement tapes and stuff were recorded in the house, but this was all professionally recorded in studios. And as a yes. matter of fact, the people who were responsible for recording it, the, the uh two people John Simon and Shelley Yakis, are I mean, they're like two giants of the rock industry. I mean, John Simon, who produced this record, he produced, uh, well, he produced also the their albums, The Band and The Last Walls. He produced Cheap Thrills by Big Brother and The Holding Company. He produced hmm. uh, Leonard Cohen's album, Songs of Leonard Cohen, so more Canadians. He produced Blood, Sweat, and Tears, Child is the Father <laughs> of the Man. I mean, a bunch of like seminal, seminal wow. records. And then Shelly Yakis, who was the engineer, uh, Shelly Yakis is in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and produced, or I should say engineered, I mean, John Lennon, Lou Reed, U2, The Ramones, Van Morrison, obviously the band, Dire Straits, Joan Armitrading, Count Basie, Frank Sinatra. I mean, like just everybody in in the universe. So this I think one of the really cool things about the the sound of this record is the fact that there were incredibly detail oriented people who were trying to like the band when the, when John Simon said how do you want this to sound the band said we want it to sound just like it did in the basement of the house and mm-hmm. they had people who were willing to kind of go there with them but there's there's so much distinction in the sound uh you know it's not it's not compressed to death like modern albums i mean you can really hear what's happening in this record which i think is really important to the success Mm -hmm. of the music even though that success you know maybe took a while to be realized but i think some of the staying power in the music comes from how carefully the album was produced and recorded
0: this uh this town with the tricky name is pretty close to woodstock new york and i think i i sort of read that as we were going through some notes this week and thought oh yeah of course like you know synonymous with the Woodstock festival, but I think uh, this shows my uh, age and ignorance um a the the album comes out before the Woodstock festival ever took place b woodstock didn't actually take place in woodstock new york New York, but a ways away from it and sort right. of the third thing is that uh Woodstock was sort of this art hippie commune sort of cultural center in the region and so there was some draw to it not not just for being a sleepy place but a place where like art took place and um
2: and it's still like that now
0: it it
2: is yeah yeah i mean i've i've spent time there and uh it's you know there's a certain both because people don't realize woodstock didn't happen in woodstock and because so many other things did happen in woodstock there's certainly uh a tourist trade around the name and all that stuff. But there are still a lot of people just up there making art. Uh, You know, there's Mm -hmm. a lot of like people from the jazz world in New York city who live up in that region. And a lot of great painters Uh, there's been an experimental music studio there for decades and decades and decades. And so there is still really cool stuff happening around there, you know, while at the same time you can also get any object you could ever imagine being tie dyed, on the main street, you know, <laughs> yeah. so you gotta you take the crunchy with the smooth, but it's uh, mm. it's still got a lot of cool stuff happening,
0: and a pretty small, sleepy town. Still, it's not a metropolis in any sense, right?
2: Oh, it's definitely small. I don't know if I would call it sleepy necessarily. It's like it's sleepy in that uh, we recreated this town for your viewing pleasure, kind of way, like oh, and, it, and yeah. it has like super expensive boutique restaurant uh, uh really? stores yeah. and that kind of stuff, too. So, you know, one you can get your tie-dyed shirt and then next door to it, you can get a $700 pair of jeans, you know, at some store. So it definitely, it knows who it's clientele are and they're, Mm -hmm. you know, middle-aged stockbrokers who used to like listening to the band back in the day (laughs) and have a
1: lot of money. Gotcha. Uh, Really interesting album cover. One that I wasn't too familiar with, but but really neat. Um, and this is a painting and another album cover here that doesn't have the name of the artist or uh, album name on it, uh, which right. is all I always find interesting. You know, didn't you want to kind of market your, I know it's going to be on the side. It's going to be on the disc, but you want to market it, <laughs> like put the name of right. of the right. music
0: on there, but from, especially for a debut album.
1: Yeah. It's interesting. But uh, yeah, just a uh, image. And this is a painting um, and it's a painting by Bob Dylan. Um, and I read that uh, he had offered, when they were first proposing to do it and recording music, he had offered to sing and then had kind of declined or was either declined or was told to decline, but he decided that he wanted them to discover their own sound and become a band, an entity without him, uh, which I think was, was a really good decision because they sound great. On their own, kind of found their own identity, but he offered to give this uh, beautiful contribution uh, to the album, which was his painting. Uh, And also interesting that there's five members of the band, but there's six people in this painting, which, you know, we would assume that one of them is the painter himself, Bob Dylan. Um, (laughs) And then, uh, other really interesting thing on the inside cover of the album, there's a photo of. Uh, all the members of the musicians' families. So the four Canadians, they got all their families to travel to Rick Danko's family farm, um, which is in Blaney, which is near Simcoe, Ontario, uh, north shore of Lake Erie, uh, for this family photo. And because Levon Helm's parents couldn't come, they just put a little insert photo of his parents in the top Left so on the inside <laughs> cover of the album there's this huge you know group of people which is all the family and it says in black print on it uh, next of kin um which I believe is a lyric somewhere in the from in this the wheels
2: album. on fire notify my next yes. kin; this wheel shall explode yeah
1: yes yeah. absolutely so uh so yeah kind of a couple a couple neat little tidbits there but yeah I uh um I told my my wonderful wife Nora. I showed her this picture and told her that Bob Dylan um, painted it. He's, she said, uh, "Geez, it looks like a three-year-old painted that thing." Um, <laughs> so uh,
0: <laughs> she works with three-year-olds.
1: <laughs> uh, she, she does. So she would know. Um, she would know it. So that's, again, her you know expressing her love for Dylan there. Um,
0: <laughs> it it's quirky. Um, there's an elephant <laughs> kind of leaning into the shot, yeah. and a kind of withered tree at the back end. One of the I don't. It looks like a sitar player, maybe has a giant cup bowl thing on his head. <laughs> um, yeah, it and the guy playing the piano is being boosted over the back of the piano to lean over to press the keys. It's uh, it's quite something.
2: Yeah, there's uh, you can uh, since you mentioned the thing about there being five people in the band and six people on the album cover and two of whom are playing something mildly guitar-like and there's only one guitar player in the band, which is Robbie Robertson. So maybe the other guitarist is meant, you know, meant to be Dylan. Sure. Um, And then it's, it's mildly unclear what's supposed to be happening with the guy boost, like the guy who's doing the boosting of the other guy over the back of the piano. Yes. Uh, (laughs) It's not because there are, there are two piano players. Well, you know, Garth mostly plays organ and then Richard Manuel plays piano. Um, But, But, you know, it's a little unclear what that what that other guy is up to. Exactly. And then, Mm -hmm. yeah, I do. I adore the the elephant. I mean, it's just like, (laughs) sure, why not? There's we got there's this big space in the upper right corner. What should we do with it? What if I put an (laughs) elephant there? Okay, give
0: him some spiky hair, too. (laughs) Yeah,
2: you're Bob Dylan. You can put
1: whatever you want. Well, Jason, I was hoping you'd address the elephant in the room.
2: Oh, my
0: God. Oh. Oh. Well, Shut
2: that's our down. show, folks. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for being here. We'll be back next week with Shecky Green.
0: <laughs> it, I think, again, this is showing my ignorance. I've, I used to think this album was called Music from the Big Pink. And I think I assumed the Big Pink was some kind of metaphorical, weird plateau that you reach through some... 60s drug trip experience and so when I saw this cover, I was like oh yeah, that's the Big Pink that's what it looks like, <laughs> that's weird <right. laughs> uh,
2: that's the name of the elephant, yeah, exactly big pink. Yeah. That's, yeah. Right. that's right
1: yeah huh. well that's a lot uh, more PG than what I thought it was referencing, so that's good uh,
2: well given where you've already gone, I think it's best that you not take us there
1: <laughs> again yeah, yeah. <laughs> fair Ooh. enough First, I'll list the tunes, then we'll go from there. So we've got Tears of Rage. To Kingdom Come. Come, In a a Station. Caledonia Mission. The weight and side two has We Can Talk Long Black Veil Chest Fever on Five Lonesome Susie. This Wheel's on Fire. fire. I Shall Be Released. So again, Ben, we talked about the Sweet Spot, 10, 11 tracks seem to be the kind of the the standard LP would hold that. That's been very consistent in most of the albums we've talked about. Uh, Jason, why don't you start us off? Do you have any favorites or when you listen to this or have memories songs that come to mind right away as your favorite
2: well, I mean, I hesitate to say The Weight because that's – if anybody knows any song by the band, that's the song they know. And if you listen Here to too. classic rock radio and the band comes up, that's the song that's going to play. Yes. Uh, either that or The Night They Drove Old Dixie Down. I guess those are the two, yeah. the two band songs that anybody knows. But The Weight is a masterpiece. I mean, we know it yes. for a reason, and it is an absolute masterpiece. Agreed. Um, I this To me, this whole album is almost like one long suite. Sure. And yeah. I, this is from the era when albums were released. Yeah. And so I tend to think of this as a, a, a contained body of music. And that's how it feels most whole and right to me, is listening to this whole record all the way through. Even though you can hear these songs, I mean, on Rock of Ages and The Last Waltz and many other places you can hear these songs reappear. Even on the some Dylan live records the band plays, like uh, before the flood or is it after the flood now i've confused myself i can't remember <laughs> it's in some direction to the flood uh the live album they play a bunch of these songs and but they never sound to me as right as when you hear them in this in this collection yeah, uh, sure you know for example the the stuff that happens with chest fever into the, the you know the the kind of organ opening into the song and uh, this wheels on fire into i shall be released which is just I mean, that's an amazing twofer yeah. um, I, there's I just I did want to mention that uh, Levon Helm wrote a book called This Wheels on Fire about <laughs> his time with the band and particularly uh, it it mentions a lot of the stuff that happened around the time of the last waltz and all of the acrimony that was happening when essentially robbie robertson made the unilateral decision to end the band and then made a big thing out of it um and i just want to recommend to people to to check out that book because it's it's really really brilliant but yeah i this to me this whole thing it's it's almost like uh like a rock symphony or something it's not a concept album but it is an album that is an album like it really holds together
0: yeah does it come out of the um you know, they had they, they had really successful musical careers before getting to their debut album. Do you think that a lot of this stuff was, was built over that long stretch of time? Or do you have a sense that it really does come out of the Big Pink and that, you know, basement hangout time? Um, or does this feel more like something that's been crafted over a long period of time?
2: No, I do think, well, I think the uh, sound of the band and the cohesion of the band is yeah, the result yes. of all of that time on the road. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that, like, if you um, if you even think about who sings on these songs, because the band doesn't have a lead singer. Everybody except Robbie Robertson sings uh, on these albums, although Robbie Robertson does kind of sing on To Kingdom Come. And he gets a microphone whenever you see him on stage, but I'm firmly convinced <laughs> that microphone's not plugged into anything. But, uh, <laughs> but, um, oh, and actually, uh, I said everybody. Garth doesn't sing. Either. Garth so, doesn't sing. No. No. Um, so you have uh Richard Manuel sings lead on the first three tunes, then Rick Danko sings the next one, then Levon and Rick sing one together, then all three sing another one, sing the first one on side B, and then Rick and then Richard for two, and then Rick and then Richard. And I think the. The beauty of that is you could listen to the band for a while and until somebody points out, you know, this is all different guys and they don't sound anything alike. But mm. I think the sound of the band is so cohesive that it doesn't leap out at you immediately. Oh, wait, these are all different singers. Yeah. And if you listen to the late, that's like a masterclass in how you get a bunch of different singers who don't sound anything alike to blend and to carry different parts of the song, because in the way they, you know, they kind of come in at staggered times and that kind of thing, and different people sing different verses. And I think really the the fact that they are able to move so effortlessly around one another. You have two guys playing keyboard instruments. I mean, that's eighty-eight keys times two, whatever that is, one hundred and seventy-six keys, easily could get in the way of each other. You know, you've got just a lot of moving parts in this band, and the fact that they fit together so well, I think, comes from all those years on the road. Yes. So I I do believe that the music was primarily written, you know, who knows how much they wrote on the road before this yeah, happened, yeah. but it does seem like it was a, one of those intensive times where, like, everything is kind of clicking, you're all in a space together, you're in that creative headspace, and... You know Robbie Robertson, all of a sudden, is like, "Well, all this time we've been doing other people's music. I've had all this stuff I want to say, and now I'm going to say it," because uh, yes. he is the primary songwriter on this record.
0: I I don't know that I've ever talked with you about how you feel about Fleetwood Mac's Rumors, Jason, but uh, Mike and I like it, so hopefully, yeah, <laughs> hopefully no, we're, I mean, we're not, not going to be downplayed for that. But all time classic. Um, yeah, I I think that album does a good job at highlighting what each of those artists do well. And I think that that's apparent here too, that um, like you said, it, it, they're taking everyone's best parts and blending it seamlessly together. So it doesn't feel like you're listening to um, three uniquely different singers as you go through the album, but it just feels like a band. Um,
2: yeah, and it's, it's a band brilliant. where nobody's really out in front. I mean, mm-hmm. the you know, if you think about like I, I mentioned when I was saying who else John Simon had produced, that one of the thing one of the people he produced was uh, Janis Joplin with Big Brother and the Holding Company. Now, this is my own ignorance, but I can't name any member of the band Big Brother and the Holding Company except Janis Joplin, who was right. obviously clearly out in front. I mean, she was yeah. she was the the reason for the season. I mean, she was why that entity existed even though i know they existed before her but um and you know you think there's a lot of bands like that you think there's a uh, even if the band had the same people in it for years and years this is where it gets confusing because the band in this record is also called the band even if a small <laughs> b band had the same members for years and years there are many of those where you mostly yeah. know the lead person right like right. i mean neil young and crazy horse had the same guys in it for a very very long time and i know uh, uh, more people who know more about rock music even that you know certainly than i do could probably name every member of crazy horse but i can't whereas in the band if you take any of these guys out it's not the band anymore it's Mm -hmm. it is absolutely dependent upon the these parts and the whole is absolutely greater than the sum of them and it is a complete amalgam of the members of the band i mean in later years it certainly you know the focus often was on robbie robertson uh you know because of his songwriting and because he, he was very skillful at making that the case but and, you know certainly in, the, in this time it absolutely was a a group project that mm-hmm. and it shows i think
0: and they're not going off and having uh isolated songs thrown in here too either they're they're pretty much all together for all of them
2: yeah absolutely yeah there's no yeah. like you know, me and my acoustic guitar are going to sing right, right now. Yeah, yeah no, that, that right. not matter. at all.
1: I, I want to come back to what you said, Jason, about the the uh, vocalist. I can, even before researching here, I could pick out, you know, Levon Helm on a few because he's got a more specific, but I didn't, re- I thought it was mostly Rick Danko um, and what you said about how they they can do a whole album without you saying, Oh, that's a bunch of different people singing until I read, I hadn't realized how much Richard Manuel um, had sung on it. Um, so they, they do a really great job and the weight is unique in having different people sing on different verses uh, at work. We listen to a classic rock radio pretty much all the time. So in the course of a week, I hear a ton of bands and songs all from the 60s, 70s, 80s. Um, and there are hardly any other ones other than, We talked about Fleetwood Mac that has different vocalists, but not Mm -hmm. on the same song doing different verse. I think that is such a unique song for that. And it's done so well. And it is a masterpiece. And uh, that is so unique on this album, too. It's a
2: sign of how how, uh, difficult people found it to distinguish who was singing when, that when you watched The Last Waltz. There's a – I can't remember which song this happens on, but there's a song where Richard Manuel is singing, and it's two verses before they find him with a camera. (laughs) You know, they're just pointing a camera at somebody who's not even singing. Like, just Rick Danko's just standing there playing the bass. His mouth isn't moving. And then, like, two verses in, they finally – somebody finds the spot – puts a pin spot on Richard Manuel, and the camera finds him because they're like, oh, we're not really sure who sings this song. (laughs) I just think, like, that tells you everything you need. And that was – you know, Martin Scorsese is directing the cameras at what right. is supposed to be the grand celebration of this band, and they're still not sure. Right. Even then, right. who sings which of these songs? Do we know, guys? No, we don't seem to.
0: <laughs> yeah, I don't think they had a list. No. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um,
1: yeah, that's a good point.
0: Does the uh, controversy of who who wrote? I understand there's like a there was a lawsuit at some point about who actually owned some of these songs. Yeah. Uh, does that come after the last waltz?
2: Uh, that's a good question, and I, t- the shortest answer is I don't know the the end of the last waltz and the the way the last waltz happened and everything that happened after it. Uh, you know how much of it was re recorded in a studio and that Levon Helm refused to re record his parts and. That, you know, not the whole band wanted to break up the band and, you know, all that kind of stuff. The There was a lot of acrimony after that and a lot of accusations flying around. And I think that's around the time that the legal stuff started as well. Yeah. And uh, it was Levon Helm
0: bringing the lawsuit to the rest of the band, essentially.
2: Right. I believe right. that is the case. Um, I It's been years since I read this Wheels on Fire. And so um, I don't have all of that super clear in my head. Hmm. But there was, you know, definitely as it got as the band kind of moved toward the last waltz, which obviously they, you know, they didn't know they were moving toward it. But as the, as the group neared that period, there was certainly, I think a focus because Robbie Robertson was writing so much stuff on, you know, this, that he had always done everything, which really isn't the case. I mean, he, he wrote, I guess, four of the 11 songs on this record i think um but you know richard manuel wrote a couple of them obviously dylan wrote a couple um and uh danko was co-credited i think on this wheels on fire and then there's a um that you already mentioned the wilkin and dill folk song long block veil vale. so you know i don't it didn't start out quite as much i don't think as robbie writes all our songs and i think by the time it got to that place and like robbie makes all our decisions too There there was a lot more anger, you know, in the group.
1: Yeah. And when they reformed in the eighties, um, it was without Robbie Robertson.
2: Yeah, that's I right. Correct? Yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah. So we see that he was kind of, maybe as you said, the reason they broke up and then they wanted to get back together. Uh, anyways, Ben, do you have any, uh, fa- I mean, we don't, we don't have to, we can come back to more of your favorite stations. but Ben, do you have a, do you have a favorite here or, uh, as you listen to it, anything that popped, uh, first listen, anything that popped
0: out? Yeah, well, so I feel like before I should even begin, uh, that I'm realizing as we go through this list that there are, when I when I end up liking an album, it's for one of three reasons. First reason is, it's something I've listened to for a long time and I love it. The second reason is, it's an album that even though I hadn't listened to it, it's got a lot of radio hits, so Thriller would fall into that category, or even uh, Led Zeppelin's self-titled album that we already reviewed. Um, the third one that I think I'm beginning to like the most is an album where I know almost nothing and ended up just being like totally enamored by it. Um, the first time through, aside from The Weight, which was the only song I think I had really uh, heard or at least been aware that it was the band before, I, I didn't uh, resonate it with super well the very first listen. and And I'm not sure what that's about because – you know, uh, after several weeks, I'm really, really loving this, this music, but it's kind of grown on me over that time. And I wonder if, if that dynamic is part of the challenge that, um, uh, this, the album sales and things like that, why this album isn't held up in such high regard as some of the others, that it is something that it kind of grows on you or warms over time. Um, there's definitely just an incredible depth to these songs and a musicality that I think you both have already mentioned. Um, But the song that I think, you know, given all that preamble, the song that jumped out to me almost from the first listen is one that I was like, oh, this is cool. Why have I not heard this before? Is is We Can Talk, which follows the wait and I think starts the second side. Um, I don't know. It just seems like a fun uh, track on the album and digging a little deeper into it it's uh, it's made up of, of puns that the band has with itself or had with itself um, so it's it is sort of a tongue-in-cheek uh, song that has a really cool musical vibe to it and I, I so that's the one song that I really keep coming back to but the whole thing I, I, I think um, uh, the opening track Tears of Rage is kind of an interesting choice to begin an album but I, I really like the way that goes and Jason already mentioned the sort of dual duality of the this wheel's on fire and i shall be released as sort of a close out yeah. the album that's just such a really powerful way to to complete the whole thing too and um i hadn't really been thinking about this too much until jason brought it up earlier but the the way that it works as a whole is just really powerful i feel like i have a hard time starting this album and not going all the way to the end like I almost feel like I have to have a 45-minute section of my day if I'm going to press play on one of these songs, <laughs> because I don't want it to stop after after the, one of them plays. Um, which I think is really powerful and says something I think specifically about a good album and not just a good collection of music.
2: And it's not a record of like hooks and hits. I mean, it, no, it. Well, it's not to say that it couldn't have been. It it didn't turn out to be other than. You know other than the weight uh, sir, I think I shall be re- It's interesting because this song, this album begins and ends With songs by Bob Dylan And <laughs> uh, Which I know he doesn't uh, sing on these songs But it's it's an interesting choice when you're trying to find come out from the shadow of Bob Dylan to start right. and end your record with songs by Bob Dylan. <laughs> um, although you know they're brilliant songs. I mean, yes. and Richard Manuel co-wrote "Tears of Rage," uh, and Rick Danko co-wrote "This Wheel's on Fire." So you know they, the guys of the band contributed. But um, I. I think one of the reasons that this album might need to grow on folks is because of how much it draws on a a kind of bygone era of performance. I mean, there's there's something like 13 instruments played by the six people who played instruments on this. There's, there's five guys in the band, and then John Simon plays um, some woodwinds and stuff on the record, too. And there's just there's so much going on like it's it's almost like uh on the on the album the band they're photographed in these very old-timey clothes like mm-hmm. it's a very like monochromatic photograph of these guys in you know dark suits and they like it kind of looks like a you know you might have seen them at a medicine show or a tent revival or something which was a look that they <laughs> sure. were you know they were very uh clearly going for i mean that wasn't an accident and mm-hmm. I think that that comes through so much in their music. You can tell that these are guys who had listened to a ton of music. Yeah. And that they'd listened to a lot of what we would now call roots music. Um and I think that if you didn't come up listening to that kind of music, which most of us didn't, then hearing this stuff In the beginning, it can almost sound like music from a bygone era, even though it's played on, Mm -hmm. you know, what at the time were and really still are modern instruments. Yep. I just I think it it takes a while to to get your brain moving at the same speed, which is, I think, a slower speed as this music. It really Mm -hmm. it's not just like put it on in the background, feel good pop music. It is it is kind of listen to it music. And
1: Mm -hmm. for sure.
2: The more you do that, the more the layers of the onion peel back and you, you know, you find more and more and more. But if you just try to put it on in the background, I think there can be kind of a a slowness and an intimacy to it that that might make it a little more challenging, especially in <laughs> this day and age. Uh, you know, than a lot of other albums that make their way onto the rolling stone list that, you know, like you mentioned, Ben, I mean, it's a, it's a night and day experience to listen to thriller versus this for a host of reasons. But certainly one of those is that thriller is like a very produced album that just jumps out of the speakers at you. And, you know, there's, uh, there's lots of like super poppy hook stuff. And this album is not, is not that at all. It's like the antithesis of that. And I think that does make it challenging.
0: And superficially, uh, their collective voices are are not, for as as exceptional of uh, instrumentalists as they are, their collective voices lean more towards <laughs> Dylan kind of warbly. Uh, you know, it's it's their feeling that they're putting into it, not necessarily their their <laughs> their perfection. Um, and I think if you're just listening it as background noise, those things stand out perhaps more than the soul of the music, if that makes any sense at all.
2: Yeah, when my, uh, when my first wife and I started listening to these guys, I clearly remember, and still to this day occasionally bring up, the fact that she said, man, Rick Danko can't sing. Yeah. And then... She, by the time Rick Danko died, as I said, we were ready to to make a 17 hour road trip in our pickup (laughs) truck to go to his funeral. And, you know, she had completely turned around to, you know, just being passionately in love with the sound of Rick Danko's voice. And Mm -hmm. I would say that all these guys can sing except, well, not all of them, but the the three main guys who sing can sing exceptionally well. They just sing exceptionally well in non polished ways that we're not used to. Yeah. Um, Whereas, and I think, the, to some degree, I think the same is, is true of Dylan, but I would say that all three of these guys have way more vocal control than Dylan does, and I think that especially becomes clear when you listen to live recordings of the band, uh, of which there are quite a few, uh, both officially released and bootlegs, that you can really hear how much, like, Richard Manuel had the whole soul thing down, and, you know, Danko had this kind of, like, tenor croony thing going, and Levon has, you know, this the same way he plays drums it's like dirty swamp funk thing happening with his voice Mm -hmm. and i mean these guys have exceptional vocal chops it's just not what we're used to and like to compare it to rumors rumors has a bunch of singers on it who are uh, uh, again fleetwood mac who are exceptional exceptional vocalists. and they're exceptional in a way we're more used to like the, the you know the vocal quality of the people who sing in fleetwood mac is a much more radio friendly vocal quality and it's you know it's a lot of high soaring powerful vocals whereas this is a lot more like this beckons you in but you have to be willing to go in and i think that's that's one of the things about the band that rewards repeated listening and rewards your investment in them but i think there is some investment that's required
1: one of the words that keeps coming to mind when i listen to this and hear you guys talk the word is the blend And isn't that what you want from a backing band? I mean, I know these guys are going out on their own here, but they were a band who was built and excelled at backing up other musicians. And, you know, uh, you don't want people singing behind you that are going to steal the show. They have great blending voices that are subtle and gentle in many ways and don't necessarily have a, you know, big vibrato or something that steals the show. Um, And I think that... We hear that not only in the vocals, but in
0: the instrumentation, too, that all the instruments just blend so well. I don't know what it is about them. Maybe it's that specific point right there, Mike, but they don't strike me as sort of polarizing vocalists in the same way that like Randy Newman or even Dylan, you know, people seem to either love or hate the kind of a quirkier sounding vocalists. I don't think you, you hear that all that much from the band, although maybe your ex-wife Jason was pretty clear up front. Maybe more people do feel that way than I'm aware of. I, I'm not sure.
1: Well, when I think of you know just a group of talented musicians in your community who get together to just do a little you know a little hoedown or a little get together, it's kind of this is what I think of. Yeah, it is sounds like a very normal, average, normal person kind of singing. Does that make sense?
2: Yeah, it absolutely does, and there there is a moment. uh, There are two moments that epitomize the magic of the band uh, for me. One of which is there's a a live recording of the band at Watkins Glen, in front of what at that time was one of the largest crowds that had ever assembled. The band was the opening act; Grateful Dead was the main act. But there's uh, they recorded a live album there. I think it's just called Live at Watkins Glen, and during the performance there was a thunderstorm and they had to leave the stage. And uh, eventually Garth Hudson comes back out and plays the organ. And uh, it's just, it's amazing. But there's a moment in that live performance where I think it's as the kind of the storm is brewing where Levon helm and Rick Danko start singing this, um, I guess it's like, I guess it's an old folk song. It's like, there was an old lady from, I think it's Houston, but I can't remember. She had five hens and a rooster. The rooster died, the old lady cried, and the hens don't lay like they used to. And they just start singing this song together. And it's this beautiful moment where, like, one of them starts singing and then they all just jump in. And it it's effortless. It's just like, it's exactly hmm. what you just described. If the, if the people in your town got together and had a hoedown, but it just happened that the musicians were ex- exceptionally talented musicians. <laughs> but, I mean, it's yeah. not... When you listen to the band, you don't think, oh, I could never do that. You think, oh, I could probably do exactly. that, too. Like, that's yes. what fooled everybody about Bing Crosby. Yes. When people listen to Bing Crosby back in the day, mm-hmm. every every person thought, oh, especially every guy, because that when Bing Crosby came around, the... the popular voices were high tenors and when he came every person thought oh i sound just like him in the shower i can do that too and it was deceptively (laughs) simple because you come to realize Mm -hmm. oh you no, you don't sound like Nick crosby (laughs) i think it's the same thing with a band you listen to these guys and you're like oh yeah like i could sing that way too you can't but the fact that they that they bring you in that way i think is really important and then the other moment which is very similar to that one is a moment in the last waltz where they're being interviewed and in, you know like the green room or whatever of the winter garden and they start singing give me that old time religion and yeah it's like they're just all bound by this shared love and this shared repertoire of old mm-hmm. music yes that i think knits them together in a way that even then when the group was dissolving and you know when that was being filmed it's it's clear how much they all love this kind of... They all draw from the same well. And that you... There's no way you can make that up. And you can't... If it's not there, you can't invent it. And if uh, if you hear it, I think it seeps into you in a way that makes you... You know, if this music starts to hit you at all in, in the gut and in the heart... I think it really burrows down in because of the way it sounds like people who are just in love with the music they're playing.
0: Well, that's a wrap. I think that's a good, <laughs> <laughs> that's beautiful. That's a really, yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. Man. Uh, and,
1: and I knew that talking about this album would be more than just talking about this album because yeah. the band is just so unique and has so, so much, you know, stories and lore around it. Um, I, I wanted to make a few, comments about these tracks if i could here um first of all i love the way that horns different types of horns and wind instruments are blended throughout this album i really resonate with what you said jason about this album sounding like a whole movement and i love the way that they use the wind instruments and not uh, to to contrast like uh you know clarence clemens in the e-street band where it's just this way out in front kind of sax solo sound and other bands that have sounds like that or even the Stones who put saxophone in but it's really way out in front this just really blends in Tears of Rage with that uh, baritone kind of uh, almost make it sound like a trombone in that but just kind of uh, blending in there just sounds really great and I love that touch to it I think that fits very well with a lot of the different organ and and keyboard sounds that that kind of give a, a Orchestrated sound to the album? Especially since they're all,
2: well, with the exception of the baritone horn that you just mentioned, they're all played by the same person. All of the, you know, the organ sounds and the clavinet and the soprano and tenor all of that is played by Garth Hudson. Is all um, Garth Hudson? Yeah, The um, John Simon plays the baritone, and he plays tenor on one or two of the tracks. Okay, but, but, but the rest um, is
1: Garth Hudson, Yeah, right?
2: Garth is the old... There's only one woodwind player, and that's Garth, and he also plays the organ. So, although Richard Manuel occasionally plays organ, but, I mean, when you hear, like, the... Whenever there's a big organ part in a song, it's Garth. And then whenever yeah. live there was... Old, uh, sometimes they would have a horn section, and then sometimes it would just be Garth, and he would like play soprano saxophone solos on songs and stuff but I don't think he even I'm not sure if he improvised or not uh I know that I have seen written out solos that he played so I I think he might have been more of a you know a a compositional soloist where he figured out what he wanted to play and he just played the same thing each time I I don't want to say that that's absolutely what happened but I absolutely I definitely have seen written out Garth solos right. um but yeah, I think the, the fact that there's kind of one brain behind a lot of that
1: yeah. really helps. Absolutely. The, the, adds to the cohesive nature of the album. Uh, speaking of Garth Hudson and the organ, I love Chest Fever. Oh my God, and, it's so good. And the, just the sound of the organ in that is so... Oh, it just bites. Um, and it's got kind of that raw, almost... Uh, if you can call that sound raspy like a vocal would be raspy it's just a great way to start a track um i remember when i heard it years ago and thought what is that that is one of the coolest things (laughs) i've ever heard um and just the way they had that low notes kind of uh Kind of resonant vamping behind as the song comes in. Really, really cool tune. Probably one of my favorites on the album, is "Chest Fever." And um, nobody
2: plays organ like Garth. I mean, he no. I, recently on the jazz session I was interviewing John medesky from the band Medeski Martin and Wood, and many other things. But he Ooh. he also plays organ and keyboards. And uh, John medesky I think, is one of those people like Herbie Hancock and Chick Corea and a few others who you can Stevie Wonder. You can listen to one second of them playing keyboards, and you know who it is, which right. is challenging, because the keyboard, although you can program it to sound like different things, uh, it is not not—it's not an instrument you're having the same kind of physical effect on as, like, your mouth on a mouthpiece, that kind of thing. So, when you mm-hmm. have a very individual keyboard sound, I think it's even more impressive. And Garth, I mean, just nobody sounds like that, and he had all those... No. Uh, he had the... I think there's a some sort of pitch-shifting thing built into his organ... Because there's a lot of times when he plays and the pitches are really like, you know, wobbling all over the place, and he's, you know, he's like glissing up into other notes with a pitch shifter, and yeah. he just nobody sounds like him at all, uh, which I I just love. I mean, he because he's such a classically trained musician, it's like they just got like a church organist. And put him in a rock band. And, you know, that's unlike when you listen to a lot of other bands with organ in them. You know, you listen to, you know, Deep Purple or, you know, Yes or bands like that. I mean, those guys were classically trained, too. But they sound like since that time they have discovered other things. Whereas a lot of times I think Garth Hudson just sounds like, you know, okay go get the organist now from the presbyterian church because we got another track to record and we need him to play on it and he just comes in and he does his thing and it's like from outer space and then he goes away again and i just i think it's all, yeah
0: well it's especially because that brilliant. instrument in particular can become so kitschy like i think 80s rock organ um yeah you know just dangerously close to spinal tap kind of uh, <laughs> at times and uh and and he's not doing that i mean this is late 60s too so it's it's a different era but it's it's so good
2: yeah i mean what people were doing with the organ at this time was either it was either like just long padded chords in soul songs Mm -hmm. um or like you know booker t and the mgs kind of stuff there was some of that kind of organ playing going on and then the other big thing that was happening around this time with organ was this was you know the emergence of the prog scene and yeah. and that was you know massive organ sounds that you know were as part of eighteen minute songs, and Garth is kind of this beautiful, beautiful little person on an island in the middle of that river where he has, he knows the massive organ sounds are possible and he's happy to use them, but he also knows this is a four and a half minute rock song, like rock folk song, and mm-hmm. he's going to try and fit it in there too, and I think if. I think now a lot of producers wouldn't have had the guts to say, yes, let's put this in there and let's shove it right to the front, uh, which mm. I give John Simon a lot of credit for, and also the band had knowing what they sounded like and having a real strong direction. But I, I'm super glad that Garth ended up emerging in the band sounding the way he did and not like a dumbed-down version of what he was capable of
1: doing. Right. Hmm. Yeah, agreed.
0: Do you have any more tracks, um, Mike?
1: Uh, I, I love the story, uh, the, the narrative... Uh, storytelling in Long Black Veil, I know, and and that is because it is a, you know, a 50s country ballad. I love that they've taken that, as we discussed. That's kind of some of their roots where they're coming from. But just a neat story, you know. I, I'm convicted of murder, and um, if I say that I was somewhere else, you know, I won't be killed, but. I was with my my best friend's wife, so uh I was gonna take that to the grave. <laughs> it's just that's just the way that story is told and, and then you know she she weeps over my bones it's just uh it's a little like it's sad it's a little comical too it's uh it's a really neat story and I, I love that flavor in there as well um, and the last thing had been you mentioned this um, and it's kind of contradict what we said about this being. Yeah, kind of one big movement. Uh, I I too think that Tears of Rage is an interesting choice for an opening track. If you want it to be kind of this pop, commercial, successful thing, like I would put, you know, We Can Talk or To Kingdom Come or something like that, or even you know, Chess Fever or This Wheel's on Fire, anything Mm -hmm. (laughs) as the opening track, other than Tears of Rage, because it comes in so soft, you know, and it, it it's a great song, but even as a second track I I find it hard to get into the album sometimes starting with that not because I don't like it but it's just I guess not what my expectation is for how I want an album to start Um, I don't know Jason do you have any any comments on that? would you have a a counter argument to that?
2: I, I don't know if it's a counter argument I guess I would just say that this this album to me feels incredibly intentional and sure. I think if you're, if what you're, and again, I don't want to ascribe a lot of my own thoughts and feelings about this to what the band was thinking at the time, because of course, I don't know what they were thinking at the time, even, I mean, they've written about it to some degree, but I, I don't think we can really know what all these young guys were, you know, thinking in this house and what they, what they right. thought their careers might look like.
1: And they may not have had control over what the final product was look like anyways in terms of the order
2: that's it's yeah that's true it's quite possible they didn't have control over the sequencing although given how closely they worked with john simon my guess is that they did um sure yeah oh and also the fact that tears of rage was partly written by bob dylan like if they didn't have control yep. over it it makes sense to me that somebody would put one of the dylan songs first although i probably wouldn't sure. put this one first <laughs> but i do think there's something about this the unapologetic nature of the way this album is put together that it just says from the beginning, like, this isn't what you expected. Like, first of all, Tears mm-hmm. of Rage is the longest song on the album. Yeah. And it's... Almost all the other songs are, like, three-minute songs. Even though they don't sound like three-minute pop songs, but they're pretty much three-minute songs. Yeah. Tears of Rage is, is five and a half minutes long. And I to me, it's, it's just a statement song. You know, it's like, okay. here's if you don't like this stop now and if you like this sure <laughs> there's a lot more of this coming yeah yeah which i i i really love i mean the as the first thing on your first record to put to put tears of rage as the first song yeah. i think is a real like it's a power move you know it's <laughs> it's them False. just saying like yeah this is <laughs> this is who we are and this is what we're gonna do and uh over the course of this record, we're going to have a bunch of different lead singers. We're going to play a bunch of different instruments. We're going to sometimes sound like a recording of a medicine show from, you know, the 1800s and just deal with it. Like here, it here it comes. We're going to put a, you know, a sad murder ballad in there. And this wouldn't be the last yeah, sad yeah. murder ballad they would, you know, they would record or write for that matter. Um, I, I just love it. I, I really think from the first seconds of this record, you know you're in a different world. And if you're willing willing to go there, it's really going to reward
1: you. I think that that's kind of what what I would expect you to say or someone kind of defending that. And it really, it does that as an opening track. It does kind of paint the picture. This is what you're getting into here. Uh, This is what we've got in store for you. I just, I still just kind of go... But that one <laughs> like that's the, that's yeah. the opening track I don't know but again that's about me and kind of what I expect also too there's something um, as I'm listening to a lot more LPS uh, you know when you put the needle down and you listen to the first few notes you're staring at the record spinning and often I associate that first track having a lot of that circular movement and motion and going on when I put it on with a lot of uh, you know, think about uh, secondhand news, you know, and other opening uh, tracks on albums. Uh, and I really imagine a spinning record when I hear Tears of Rage, but that's, again, that's just me. No, um, this is
2: like the funeral cortege going by.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I was actually going to say it's got a melancholy vibe that makes me think of the Wonder Years for some reason, like a, a sort oh, wow. of nostalgia uh, nostalgia to it that uh, I know thematically the lyrics aren't really pointing in a youthful childhood kind of way, but um, it does a good job at setting a tone that, this is, that you are being transported to somewhere else. And the last
1: one I wanted to mention, and... Um, Ben, I think you would know this album. Jason, I'm not sure if you know. Uh, Jack Johnson did the soundtrack to the Curious George movie. A few oh my years God, ago. I've
2: heard that album. It was more than a few years ago. My my son, who I played it for all the time, is about to go to college. So, uh, but it was a very long time ago. But yes, I know that album
1: very well. I, I was hoping that you know his age would have lined up with that movie, and then you would know this. Um, what I hear when I hear "We Can Talk" and just the rhythm of the way the chords are moving through i imagine something from that maybe um Mm. you know three's a magic number kind of sounds sounds a lot like that um so that was kind of nostalgic too because that's also an album that um that we really love in our family um and is it's so great because it's one of those sort of like kid albums but is not as well you know it's it's something that as an adult i really really enjoy um and yeah we can talk somehow reminds me of stuff from that so um
2: when we finish recording i am definitely going to google the band jack johnson because i'm pretty sure this podcast (laughs) just made the first ever comparison (laughs) of those two musical artists and i'm I'm, so i I definitely want to know whether that's the case because i that was beautiful but in a billion trillion years i wouldn't have thought you know what this reminds
0: me of? is <laughs> Your, your Google search is going to be a challenge because it's going to come up with a billion hits for Jack Johnson's band. And yes, not that's also to... true. <laughs> <You> <laughs> <can't>, <laughs> it's
2: impossible to research the band, the band, because for exactly that reason. I, there's no way that if this band came out in 2019 any person would have let them call themselves the
1: bull. No.
2: Yeah, that was only in a pre-search, pre-search era that you could call yourself yeah. the
1: yeah. still, Still better chance than them being called the honkies, though. Yes. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> we'll I, save that
0: one for Ben. I just want to throw um, one
2: thing in. Um, yeah, absolutely. Uh, it, just because I might never get a chance to talk about these guys on a podcast again. Uh, I, <laughs> I have been a little... Uh, antagonistic toward Robbie robertson because of you know what i believe was kind of his single-handedly disbanding this group but i do want to say uh, two things about him he is an absolutely genius songwriter and and i think that this does not get as much nearly as much love as it deserves he is one of the great rock lead guitar players of all time in one of the weirdest ways you can play mm-hmm. rock lead guitar he is not he is not like a shredder. He's no. not, you know, he's not out front with one foot on the monitor, you know, one hand in the air as he plays a, a bunch of chords with his other hand. He's not that kind of guitar player. He plays lots of weird harmonics. He plays lots of strangely held high notes. and uh, But... One of Just to come back to The Last Waltz one more time, I detest Eric Clapton with every fiber of my being. And my, oh, no. one of my absolute favorite parts of The Last Waltz is when Eric Clapton... Wait, don't
1: spoil it. Don't spoil it. No, no, no. <laughs>
2: okay,
0: I'm Ben, gonna... okay. don't listen to this. Okay, I'll take my headphones <laughs> off. You guys can talk. Okay, just for I'm a second. Chase. I, should, I shouldn't have done that to you. No, that was okay. rude.
2: One of the best parts of The Last Waltz is when Eric Clapton is playing a guitar solo and his guitar strap breaks. And he drops his guitar down, and Robbie Robertson comes in and finishes the solo and just wipes the floor with Eric Clapton. Like, Eric Clapton is fake blues, and Robbie Robertson, who is also—well, I think he's actually maybe Native American? I'm not sure. Um, He might be a First Nations person. I don't know about that. But anyway, Eric Clapton is, like, white blues, and Robbie Robertson is the blues. And— I, I just you you can't give enough love to Robbie Robertson for what an amazing guitar player he is. I don't think he gets as much love as he deserves, and I just want to make sure that since I said a bunch of things that sounded like I was kind of dissing him, which I was, um, I, I'm not dissing him for his <laughs> musical contributions in any way. He's a he's a Stone Cold genius, and he's a deadly guitar player. So.
1: And and th- that is a very magical moment uh, in the film uh, where that happens, and I and I love that.
0: And I'm Does looking forward to sharing image? that. <laughs>
2: Have a chat feature so we can tell Ben it's safe to come back?
0: (laughs) I jumped back in. I thought you would be uh, wrapped up, but uh, we are. We are. We're done. So I'm assuming you were talking about the Eagles touring with Eric Clapton. (laughs) Oh my God. How much you were. That's like Ragnarok (laughs) or something. Eric Clapton and the
2: Eagles on tour together. That's the end times. I will definitely be in a bunker somewhere waiting for the aliens to take me when that tour gets announced.
1: (laughs) Oh boy. Uh, you were right about uh, Robertson's uh, mother uh, was both K- Cayuga and Mohawk. Okay, great. In, uh, in origin. So she's uh, uh, from Six Nations Reserve um, near Toronto. Uh, so, yeah, definitely First Nations. And um, we didn't end up talking a whole lot about the weight. Um, but the only other thing, I guess, I, and, and we could talk about it. We could do a whole other episode on just the weight because uh, it's awesome. Um Uh, It has become very iconic through its uh, being featured in Easy Rider, which I believe came out in 69, or it might have even been that same year, Uh, the movie with Peter Fonda and Dennis Hopper. Which is Um, awesome
2: and disturbing, and if people haven't seen it, they should see it.
1: I watched it within the last year or two because uh, a co-worker of mine who's in his 60s now kind of grew up he was a kid he was like a mid-teen when his parents took him to see easy rider in the theater oh my god uh, because because he was into uh, bikes and so there was a few scenes <laughs> where i think uh, they were just kind of shell-shocked um I mean, and, more. You know, he was like jeez this is great that's you know, amazing like, that's like i'm really
2: into mountain resorts so why don't we go see the shining mom and dad oh my
1: yeah. god right But they had no idea. Oh, of course, of course. And neither did, did he, but, um, so he said, uh you know we were talking we listened to the music and talking about banny's he's like as soon as the weight came on he's like you see seen easy ride right i know he's a motorcycle guy I said no he's like i got it at home i'll get it for you you know you gotta watch <laughs> and i did and i was you know it was like both parts really neat and really weird at the same time and definitely a uh, an art piece um oh yeah uh, dennis hop dennis hopper at the helm there but i mean I don't know, I wouldn't say that it made The Wait famous, but it certainly kept it a part of kind of being iconic in American, not only music culture, but just culture in general. Absolutely. Um, It's kept it, has helped preserve it as one of the best rock songs ever. So that's all. That's the only other thing I want to say about the. Since weight.
2: you brought up Easy Rider, I am contractually obligated to say it contains one of the great Jack Nicholson performances of all time. When he is asked whether he has a motorcycle helmet or not, and I just, I, I if, <laughs> listeners, if you do nothing else, if you never listen to music from Big Pink, but. You go to YouTube and you Google, Jack Nicholson, I've got a helmet. (laughs) This will have been time well spent, is all all I'm going to say. Boy, I sure wish I was going with you. Yeah? You got a helmet?
1: Oh. Oh, I've got a
0: helmet. (laughs) I got a beauty.
2: It is one of the great moments in cinema history. Jack Nicholson's response to the question of whether or not he has a helmet—it's just absolutely beautiful.
0: <laughs> Am I remembering correctly that that movie kind of helped get this album out into pop culture? I, I, I do not know
2: the answer to that question, but it certainly makes sense that it would have. I mean, the uh, as, yeah. a, as a cult hit, Easy Rider was yeah. you know, was pretty big, and this you know the weight certainly plays a a pretty crucial role in it i mean yeah. the band wasn't hurt in any way by the fact that they were you know on the road a lot with bob dylan, dylan so band. right yeah yeah. I, yeah yeah I think you know that was the biggest lift into the cultural the zeitgeist of the time but yeah i would i would absolutely not find it hard to believe that easy rider helped too
1: and you know especially the first half of the movie has a lot of really great um just kind of panoramic scenes of them riding through the american uh, countryside you know whether it's to the desert or well mostly to the desert because
2: also the weight was not on the soundtrack
1: no but not, it's in not the performed movie. by
2: the band yeah it's in the movie but it was it was covered by another band because they had licensing problems so it's not on the record
1: oh, yeah but and and you know I think that when that is played it's them kind of cruising through the mountains yeah so you kind of get this image stuck in your mind of you know kinda, and you could see it you as you listen to it you can see just kind of these uh, Expanses, these long kind of riding scenes, which uh, they're actually quite beautiful. Um, and and in terms of cinematography, a lot of that movie is gorgeous. Um, a lot of it just you know creeps me right out too. But that's yeah, that's later on. It takes a bit of a turn later on. I won't spoil it again for those who haven't uh, seen it, but uh, you're in for a ride in more than one way if you watch that movie. Um...
2: Oh, can I just... I'm sorry, I know I keep throwing things in, but can I just throw in... I just opened the Wikipedia page for music from Big Pink just to see if there was other stuff that I had missed. And there's there's this sentence, which is so close to being the greatest thing that ever happened in music, but not quite. For example, comma, Eric Clapton cites the album's Roots Rock style as what convinced him to quit Cream comma, and pursue the styles of Blind Faith, Delaney and Bonnie, Derek and the Dominoes, and his debut album. If if it had just said quit cream, period, and bake bread for the rest of his life or something, this would go down in history as one of the greatest albums ever recorded.
0: Oh, so close. Huh? Yeah.
2: So, so close. Oh, my. Yep. Roger Waters of Pink Floyd called this record the second most influential in the history of rock and roll after Sgt. Pepper's.
1: Wow. 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 So uh, Roger Waters puts, puts us at number two of all time.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Does he know where Dark Side of the Moon is? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm sure his boy. lawyers do. <laughs> yeah.
1: And I have a question for you. So we've been picking out um, – we've started a Spotify playlist for the podcast. So Ben and I each pick a song. Uh, so there's two songs from each album, but we haven't discussed yet what happens when we have a guest. So uh, oh, yeah. I propose that we have a guest pick a song and then uh, you and I can, you know, arm wrestle uh, digitally over, uh, over the second song. So Deal. Jason, uh, if you were to put a song from, uh, from music from big pink onto the playlist, what would it be? Oh
2: man. I, well, I'm just going to, my, my heart immediately goes to I Shall Be Released. Uh, just to tear your heart out, uh, Richard Manuel vocal. I, you know, I know it's one of the songs Bob Dylan wrote, and he's not part of the band, but it's it's a brilliant song. It's a brilliant performance. It's just, it's everything the band can do so well. And, uh, and it ends the album perfectly. So I, I'm going to go with I Shall Be Released, the final track on the record
0: sounds good a a wonderful song and maybe it would give us a very easy choice of picking the weight but since that's a song everyone already knows should we pick something else
1: well oh man i mean i i would that's the one i was gonna pick uh simply simply because it is you know it's so familiar and and you know would want it on there there are so many others i think my second choice would be chest fever just because i think it's so cool um you know, And, hey, it's our playlist. We can pick
0: three. We can do yes, whatever want. I was going to say, you put all, can put the whole put record on there if you want.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> you know, we'll put the, the weight on for now.
2: One of the things that's rough about classic rock radio, because we often listen to classic rock radio at work where I work, too, until I plug my USB speaker in and we start listening to these things. But um, <laughs> one of the difficulties about classic rock radio is it's insistence on only covering like four or five songs per artist mm, can make yeah. you tired of songs that were sure. originally picked for those formats because they're brilliant. And the yes. weight like I think with where the band is concerned, people are like, Oh, not the weight again. But right. if you can take a step back and hear it with fresh ears, I mean, it is one of the best songs Ugh. ever written period. Like it is.
1: It's so great. It's
2: a stone cold masterpiece. <laughs> From beginning to end, the vocals, the writing, the, the musicianship on it, it's absolutely brilliant. And so I totally understand the whole thing about, you know, classic rock radio. It's been three hours. Let's listen to Money again. I, I get the way in which that can make you want to kill everyone you've ever met. But um, I, I, I'd be okay with that, yes, actually. Yes, I wouldn't want the... Uh, I wouldn't want the preponderance of the weight representing the band on radio to in any way color our perception of the song, the weight as being overplayed or trite or anything. Right. Cause it is not, it is, it is absolutely worthy of its recognition as one of the great songs that deserves a place of classic rock radio. And I think should be, you know, it should be included in, in any survey of the greatest songs in rock history.
0: For sure. That puddles it.
1: Agreed. It, it, and it plays out like a old folk or country ballad or even a hymn. You know, the way there's there's so many verses and they're quite similar, but there are variations. Um, uh, yeah. yeah, it was okay. written in the but,
2: 1960s, but if you told me it was written in the 1860s, I wouldn't have had any trouble believing it. Like, you know, if somebody said, oh, this is a cover of an old an old folk ballad, too, you'd be like, oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But yeah, it was just written sense. by Robbie Robertson and you know, Saugerties, New
0: York. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Given all that we've talked about here, it sounds like all three of us appreciate this album. Maybe we might even say we love this album. Um, Is it still relevant? How does it fit with relevancy? And this is a complicated question, so we can take it in whatever direction we want. But why don't we start with you, Jason? How do you feel about this album's relevancy?
2: The fact that we're recording this now in 2019, I think means this album is relevant Once again, I think there was a period of American popular music, you know, in the 80s and uh, probably into the the beginning of the grunge era and stuff where Mm -hmm. maybe this roots rock thing, it didn't have the ear of the public anymore. But nowadays... Uh, I think there are so many bands who owe so much debt to these guys and the sound they pioneered, because I know when, Ben, you mentioned at the beginning that we met because of 98.7 The Freak, and 98.7 The Freak played a lot of, you know, what I would call kind of Americana rock in addition to, you know, many other things, but we certainly had a, a heaping helping of that kind of music, and So much of that music owes a sonic and songwriting debt to what these five musicians did over their careers. So I think, in an odd way, uh, this album has become more relevant again. Uh, I don't think it was ever, I don't think it ever went out of style for musicians. But I think for the general public, it has come back into fashion and currency because so many other bands are, are grabbing onto this Roots Rock idea nowadays.
0: I love that. And I think when, when modern Roots Rock is done as it's at its best, it sounds an awful lot like this. Like when I think about my favorite Avett Brothers songs, for instance, they sound an awful lot like they could be on this album. Sure. Um, hmm. I think that says something about its relevancy. It's not for everyone, certainly. I think, I think, just like this album is an acquired taste. I think not everyone right now is listening to uh, you know, modern folk rock or roots rock, but, but yeah, it absolutely still sounds like something that could be played on a radio station like The Freak. I think some
1: of the sounds, some of the, some of the organ sounds, and some of the instrumentation maybe would be not quite as relevant or sound a little dated at this time, but most of it, you know, would be very relevant. Uh, Certainly if we start at, you know, the weight as being kind of the most recognizable, one of the most popular, uh, that's very relevant. We're still, people are still performing and writing songs that sound like that and many other things. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. People are still
2: covering the weight. Oh, absolutely.
1: of course they are. <laughs> they
2: are. You know, I mean are. it's like uh yeah. not not only is it I mean like relevant but it's it's still being played now. You know, people are still mm-hmm. uh, you could oh. go to a a show by a lot of modern bands and then you'll see so they'll break into the weight, You know, at some point during it. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, it's still it's still out there. That's for sure.
0: Uh, all the way back at episode 12, I think we were still trying to figure out what exactly we were doing here, um, with this podcast. And I think in some ways we still are, but your, uh, point, I believe on that episode where you talked about whether the instruments being used are still used today, um, I think has been so helpful for us as we think about this question of relevancy. Does it still sort of fit with how music is being made? I think we keep going back to that time and time again, when we're trying to answer this about other bands and just wanted to say yes. thanks for that helpful yeah, word. We've brought um, it up several times Yeah, yeah my pleasure. as we keep going. Well, what about this position on the list? Um, uh, this list is not perfect, but uh, they've given this, the ranking of number 34 on the list of the 500 greatest albums of all time. How do we feel about that ranking?
1: It's a tough one. I, even after talking about it with you gentlemen, I feel like my opinion has changed of it. Um, and again, we've talked, you know, we've been, Ben, you and I have been learning more and doing more research about, you know, how the list was compiled, how they pulled a bunch of different people. And, you know, they, those people put in their top 50 and kind of punched it into a computer and it spat out a number. Um, so, you know, that's one way to do it. Um, I think that if it wasn't for kind of the popularity of it and how many uh, issues it sold, sorry, how how many records it sold, and and that's unfortunate uh, because it's way better than how commercially successful it was. It is way better than how many copies it sold um but i think that does kind of limit it when you try and stack it up against some of the other albums that are here Uh, i think it should be a little higher and for the influence it has had on musicians ever since and on this era and beyond i think you know i think into the 20s i could definitely swap it out for some of the albums we discussed between 21 and 30 so yeah higher for me
0: yeah
2: higher for me too absolutely i mean it's hard for me to divorce my my love for this group and this record from my, you know, kind of rational assessment of how important it is mm. because I'm not actually sure how many people have heard of the band anymore, you know? Mm. Um, yeah. I, I think if I just went out on a street uh, in, you know, this college town where we live and started asking people, you know, do you know who the band is? I don't think most people would mm-hmm. so it from you know from that point of view it's easy to see why other albums by groups that people still remember more people who aren't our age still remember more uh, might seem like they deserve a higher up place on the list mm-hmm. but i think in terms of the effect of this band on what came after it and the c- critical impact it had on bob Dylan's sound And Bob Dylan Mm -hmm. obviously has a very revered place, you know, in the history of this music and on Rolling Stones list. Yeah, I think given those two factors, I think it deserves a higher place than than 34. And the fact that Hmm. it contains one of the great songs ever written. Like if if the weight was a single, I think it should be higher up on the list, (laughs) you know, than than 34. And the fact that it's surrounded by all of these other songs Um, that said on a list of 500 records, 34 is still pretty high. So yes. I don't have yeah, a, for sure. I don't have a religious objection to it being at 34 but but much like no, Mike just either. said I could absolutely swap it out for a lot of other things that are way higher up.
0: Yep. I think this is the spot on the list where I I feel like I'm uh I'm struggling with bumping it up or down because of that very fact. Like there, 34 is high. <laughs> um there's albums uh ahead of it that I would I would much rather see below it. (laughs) And I'm sure we'll get to quite a number of albums in the next 20, 30 records that um, I might place above it. Um, This one's a tough one for me also because it is still so new in my mind. Like it's really only in the last few weeks that I've ever heard it. Um, It's a, it's, as I mentioned previously, it's it's been such a joy to like find an album like this. This is sort of what I hoped most of the albums would be on this list. If I hadn't heard it right. before, it would be great, and I'd be totally convinced of why it's there. Um, right. So I don't know. I guess <laughs> I guess for now I'll stand pat. Um, but I I wouldn't mind if it were higher, and I'd be surprised if it were lower. Maybe maybe that's how I'll I'll answer that. And probably also worth pointing
2: out that the band is on this list three times. Yeah. Um, <laughs> twice twice under their own steam and once. You know, credited as Bob Dylan and the band, so there they do get, you know, they do get the, uh, I think, some more love, and they, uh, I think it's important and right that they're on this list yeah. more than once. I think they could be on it more times, to be totally honest, because I think there are, they have enough uh, seminal recordings that I think they could appear more times. But uh, this isn't their only appearance, which is is worth keeping in mind as well. So
0: were they Dylan's backing band for any of his albums that appear?
1: No. Um,
0: Well, they're on the list as
2: Bob Dylan and the band for one of those records.
0: For the, The for the
2: base for the basement basement tapes,
1: tapes, which was recorded, you know what? Around 67. But that album wasn't released till 75. Um, And, well, they started touring with him in '66, but they were only the touring band. I believe Robbie Robertson plays, you know, one uh, a guitar on one track on Blonde on Blonde, but I don't think much else. They're not um, on that album. I see.
0: No.
1: no.
2: Yeah, they're they're not on the list. Any place where they're not named.
0: I see. Might be yeah, a, yeah. A fast way to yeah, put that. That's yeah. a good way to say it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah They show
1: up um, not too far from here. Their self-titled album, The Band uh, at number 45. And then the
2: base.
1: Yeah, it's, it's, Mm -hmm. it's a good one. And the basement tapes is two ninety-two with Bob Dylan. Um, so that's, yeah, that's the only two other times they show up. Um, you're right. It would have been nice a few other times, but at least they're represented and, you know, both fairly high up on the list. The two, the two albums, that's just them. Um, we have another segment that we've started and sometimes it falls flat. Um, well, that's a great intro. Yep. Um yeah, my when I say something like that, my hope is that the person at the editorial controls will remove that part. Um, uh but sometimes it backfires and they leave it in. Um, and that's um, you know, and sometimes it comes to mind right away, do you have a favorite cover uh from the album um uh, off the top of your head? Sometimes we go, yeah, no, I can't think of any, but sometimes it's just tons.
2: Yeah. Uh, my favorite cover of a song from this album, which but the cover also contains the band, is the version of The Weight that includes the Staple Singers that was recorded along at the same time as The Last Waltz was recorded, but wasn't part of the concert. At the same time, they did the big concert, and then for the film, they recorded on a soundstage other performances. Uh, and right. one of them is the Staple Singers singing this song, and it's... Amazing. Uh, it's it's really incredible because it's greatly helped by the fact that the Staple Singers were another group of people who did the same kind of thing that the band did where they had multiple people who took lead and they could intertwine their Mm -hmm. voices really seamlessly. They, you know, were good about passing lead parts on and off. That's a hallmark of what the staple singer sounded like. So then when you give them a song where that's built into how the song functions, they just knock it out of the park. So that, I think that's a really brilliant cover of a song by the band.
1: Uh, That's, that's uh beautiful because that was also the first one that came to mind even though it's not really a cover um that was the first one i love that performance i love the way that those vocalists portrayed this song and mavis staples performance on that is just really special um sure is and i love it i love it so much um uh there's an alter. there's a bonus track on the uk version of weezer's red album where they cover this um that is not the one I chose. And in fact, I didn't think it was very good, but I do like Weezer. So uh, um, Weezer also covers the weight. But th- those are the two that the only two that came to mind. Ben, did anything come to your mind?
0: Well, this week I found uh, a version of Long Black Veil. And I've realized since then that that's not actually a song that the band wrote. But. Um, it was done for, for a, a live television performance by Joni Mitchell and Johnny Cash. Um, and it's, a, it's haunting and beautiful in a different kind of way. Uh, but I, I'm now wondering if they are... I think it was performed after this song came out on... Music from Big Pink, but I have no idea. I would say so. A seminal enough song in that sort of artistry world that they were just singing it because everyone knows that song, or if it's because it was a song by the band.
2: And there's a bunch of covers that um, were fairly well received of This Wheel's on Fire. Um, it was covered by Brian Auger in The Trinity. Yeah. I think Julie Driscoll sings on that one. And that was like a top 10 or top 5 UK song that was right at the same time this record came out and then the cool. next year the birds did a recording of this wheels on fire on dr birds and mr hyde um and there's a live album by the birds that i can't remember the name of that also has this wheels on fire on it and then Susie and the banshees did an all covers album in the 80s uh that was called through the looking Gra- glass that also had uh, this wheels on fire on it as well and that was another it was a top something or other top 20 top 10 uh, hit for them so that song has reappeared a bunch of times over the years in wildly different <laughs> formats uh, and those are actually just a few of its covers I know Elvis Costello has done it and Guster and a bunch of other people
0: Kylie Minogue apparently too oh okay wow well. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> well and you know just before we wrap up uh,
1: that I've said before and, and we talked about this when we talked about Joni Mitchell's Blue Album um You can do that when you have songs that just have such excellent structure, great legs. Uh, It can lend itself to so many different styles and genres and other bands and artists. So uh, when you have a great song, uh, it's going to be reproduced because of how good it is. Yeah. Definitely the case with this album.
2: Yep. I agree.
1: Well, I think that brings us to a close. Jason, we want to thank you so much for uh, taking the time out of your day and spending it with us here. It has been a pleasure.
2: Yeah, yeah, my pleasure. Uh, I, I'm really glad you guys are still cranking along with this for the next 20 years, or however long it's going to take uh, <laughs> to do the whole list. Uh, we'll all be old, old men on a porch somewhere. But I'm, I'm always yeah. uh, pleased to be welcomed back, and I was especially happy because uh, a how much I love this group and this record, and and uh, and just also to talk about it thoughtfully, which I think this yeah. podcast really does a good job of. So uh, thanks very much for having Thank me. You.
0: Side note, uh, uh, we pitched your idea of Jason comes on and explains what Ben and Mike got wrong to Thomas when he was on as a guest recently. And he's like, (laughs) Jason was one of my favorite guests. He should definitely do that. (laughs) Always, always happy to help.
2: Also, always happy to add more uh, either anti-Eagles content or just random voicemails about the record you're talking about. So uh, you let me know anytime that's useful, and I'm perfectly happy to chime in.
1: I I think the suggestion was two more podcasts. One podcast of you uh, saying how much we got wrong, and then Thomas doing another podcast about how much he liked your podcast on what we go wrong <laughs> it's so meta
2: it's like a whole family of podcasts just reacting to the initial episode right exactly we're
1: gonna, we're gonna be the new McElroys. The oh my yeah. god
2: it was just a McElroys reference owen yeah. oh lord
0: uh, guys this is fun this is always fun thanks so much jason that was wonderful
2: yeah thank you guys mm-hmm. always always honored to be on
0: you bet. Take a look at the coming albums and let us know if there's another one that you want to jump on for. Yeah,
2: sure will.
1: What do we got coming up next time, Mike? Well, next time we have album number 35 on Rolling Stone Magazine's top 500 list. And that's The Rise and Fall of Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars. Oh,
2: my God. So good.
1: <laughs> um, <laughs> by David Bowie. Yeah. Um, I think that's the longest title so far, but uh, I'm really looking forward to that one. Um, Yeah. And looking forward to talking with you again, Ben. Thank you, Jason. And thank you, everyone listening at home, for uh, taking time out of your busy life to choose to join us here. We appreciate it. Talk to you soon. If you like what you hear, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and
0: write a review. Send us a message at our Facebook page, on Instagram or through our SoundLogic podcast Twitter feed. Thanks for listening.